SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 69 with guest Glenn Berry. Our guest today is Glenn Berry. Glenn is a principal consultant with SQL Skills. He's a long-term SQL Server professional, mostly working as a database architect for Avalara in Parker, Colorado. A fellow SQL Server MVP since 2007, he has a whole collection of Microsoft certifications which proves he likes to take tests. His expertise includes DMVs, high availability, hardware selection and configuration, and performance tuning. Glenn is an adjunct faculty member at University College, University of Denver, where he's been teaching since 2000. He completed the Master Teacher Program there. Glenn is heavily involved in the SQL Server community and frequently speaks at user groups, SQL Saturdays, and the Past Community Summit. He was a co-author with me on both volumes of the SQL Server MVP Deep Dive books, and he recently wrote a book entitled SQL Server Hardware. I'll add Glenn's contact details to the show notes, but welcome, Glenn. Well, thanks, Greg. Well, I mean, I've been at SQL Skills for about four and a half years now, uh, mm-hmm. being a consultant. Remote consulting is what we do most of the time, and then we also do some on-site training and on-site consulting. Yep. And before that, I worked at Avalara, and then for quite a while, I worked at Newsgator. That's kind of where I got my start. Yeah, that was and the news aggregator, wasn't it? Yeah, they did RSS aggregation, and then later on, they started doing SharePoint integration. Mm. And so, so you're in your you know, I was a role, uh, what are you spending most of your time doing? Well, we do a lot of what we call SQL Server health checks. And we first make a contact with a new customer and we find out what's wrong with their system and then tell them how to fix it and if necessary, fix it for them. And then we do a lot of performance tuning and, and performance optimization. That's usually what I end up doing. And then yeah. I advise people on hardware upgrades and, infrastructure upgrades. So that's what I do most of the time. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, given that I do a lot of very similar things in the performance tuning area, what, what are the, the main things you find performance-wise that are problems? Well, I find a lot of people who have old, out-of-date hardware or hardware and storage that hasn't been configured properly find a lot of people where their SQL Server configuration at the instance level and the database level is just wrong. You know, lots of things that are often pretty easy to fix and get an immediate improvement that the customer notices. So, yeah, that's the the nice thing about any of those that you can change means that you're not needing to change the applications. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I'm fairly well known for my diagnostic queries that have been out there for a number of years. And I use those on a daily basis with most of my consulting clients. And quite often, pretty much every time we run those on somebody's system, we find all sorts of things that are wrong, whether it's configuration issues or missing indexes or 
index fragmentation. There's always something. Mm-hmm. So there's usually a laundry list of things that can be improved again without touching the application. So that's really nice. In in terms of system configuration, what are, what are the things you find most commonly misconfigured? Well, you know, I find people don't have some of the common best practice trace flags enabled, mm-hmm. you know, like 2371 Actually, or 1118. Um, yeah, I was going to say in terms of trace flags, what are the ones that you routinely have in place? Well, I, I think everybody should have 11.18 unless they're on SQL 2016. and Which I, uh, disables uh, mixed page extent allocations. Exactly. So it makes TempDB work a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one that I like to enable for pretty much everybody is 2371. Mm-hmm. And you know, that one lowers the threshold for automatic statistics updates on large tables. And both of those are actually turned on by default in SQL Server 2016, so Microsoft uh, agrees. Triple one seven as well, which grows the the files by the same rate. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. And so that's another one that I typically like to turn on on down-level versions of SQL Server. Uh, another one we always recommend that's not really performance-related is 3226. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the one that disables logging of successful database backup messages to the error log. Which again, if if people are doing large numbers of log backups, for example, can make a big difference. Exactly, you know, it makes it harder to find more relevant errors if you've got all that extra information in the error log. Yeah. Now, as you mentioned, uh, it's probably worth noting a lot of people might not have noticed that yet, but in SQL Server 2016, a lot of these behaviors are now baked in. Yep. And Microsoft's done a pretty good job of publicizing that, but you're right. I think a lot of people may not realize that yet. Mm. Uh, I think for uh, a lot of people I come across, uh, 2016 is still, it, it's in their future. It just, ha- just hasn't come yet. Yes. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I've had a few customers jump on it already, but not that many yet. It's still fairly early days. you know. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people still have this mindset that they're going to wait for Service Pack 1 before they deploy a new version. And I think that's not really necessary anymore, especially with SQL Server. Mm. But Actually, I agree, but I might get you to spell out more as to why. Well, I mean, SQL 2016 was in the CTP process and RC process for quite a while, and they've been using the code in Azure for quite a while. So it's mm. been sort of battle-tested more compared to some of the older versions of SQL Server. And they have pushed out two cumulative updates for it. And a lot of people don't realize, perhaps, that Microsoft's changed their guidance about applying cumulative updates. Mm. They recommend that you proactively apply them now, and they say that the level of quality and testing is the same as a service pack. So that's another reason not to wait for a service pack. Mm. In fact, yeah, that, that's an interesting point because the – what I used to tell people years ago is that the difference in the service packs and the cumulative updates effectively was the amount of testing that went on. Um, but what they're now saying is that's now the same. Yep. You know, and they had a, a blog post on the release services blog a few months ago that talked about all this. So, mm. And the wording on the website used to use words like only apply cumulative updates if you had a specific problem that was addressed by those updates where service packs, they used to say, apply all the time. But as you're saying, they're now saying apply them all. 
Yeah, and you know, Aaron Bertrand and myself were somewhat instrumental in pushing Microsoft to change that policy and go public with it and get rid of all the scary language that used to be in the CU knowledge base articles. So I was really happy when they finally did that. It's a big improvement, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, actually, they're becoming more and more responsive to these sort of things all the time. In fact, Aaron's uh, uh, on the next show uh, is the current plan, so that's good. Uh, he'll be coming on talking about the changes in around Plan Explorer and things. But, uh, yeah, no, that that's great, actually. I've seen a lot of sort of change and responsiveness to the community things. There, I suppose the only question that then comes is, how do you see there being a different between difference now between a service pack and a cumulative update? Well, the way it was explained to me a couple of years ago from Microsoft is that a service pack requires a lot more bureaucracy and certification on their level. And some larger organizations may not want to deploy CUs, even though they're really the same technically in many respects. So for those sorts of organizations, I think the service pack is going to make them feel more comfortable because of the extra paperwork that Microsoft has to do for a service pack. But I think that's the main difference now. Yeah, I, I do worry at the moment that it, that's the only that's the only thing I worry about is it's kind of muddied the water a bit, and you just wonder that's now not just a series of updates. You know, if, if effectively the testing is the same. So, but yeah, no, and I suppose it is one of the challenges too. It means you'll have customers on a whole range of different versions, but exactly the same thing now applies to Management Studio and all the other tools as well. Well, yeah, you're right. For the new version of Management Studio, they're updating it basically every month. So, What's your take on that so far? Well, so far it's been a little bit buggy, but they're, you know, since they're updating it every month, they fix things and you get a new version relatively quickly. Hmm. And, you know, it's a little bit hard to get used to it because they changed, uh, I believe, the Visual Studio 2015 shell. So it just looks different and sometimes behaves a little bit different, but you know, it's been stable enough for me to use on a you know daily basis. It just has a few annoying issues from time to time. Yeah, I thought uh, actually that was the only thing I actually thought was a bit of a mistake is they went through all the testing phase and then just prior to when the product was shipping they changed that was the point at which they changed across to the new shell. Uh and I it, yeah, I think the moving to the new shell introduced a lot of issues. Uh, yeah. Uh, but n not in terms of basic sort of functionality, but in terms of uh, things that were more like, you know, I, I found the defaults for edit and replace, you know, all those sorts of things just, you know, changed to something I wasn't comfortable with. Uh, I've also had a number of issues with uh, screen layout, screen positioning, things like that, but even the people uh, in the Visual Studio groups, I mean, are talking about exactly the same thing. So, you know, they're, they're sort of Visual Studio issues more than Management Studio. Yeah, well, one nice improvement that showed up fairly recently is they've got much better support for 4K displays. Mm. It looks a lot better than it used to, so that's yeah, important that's for some people. Display scaling stuff, yeah, because that's, that's right. It was getting to the point where you had uh, the ability to change the fonts and everything in the normal tabs, but all the other things, like the Object Explorer, all those things, there was there's very little you could do. And on very big displays, uh, I might be getting old, but, uh, you know, that, that writing was starting to look mighty small. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So it's much better now than it was even a few months ago. 
Mm. Now, in terms of uh, the book you've just put out, so it's on SQL Server hardware. What sort of, uh, what I suppose, what's the breadth of what it covers? Well, actually, that book is a few years old now, and I'm hoping to do a second edition of it. But what I talked about back then and what I've talked about in a lot of blog posts and articles since then is just the main problem that I had seen in the field and in my career is that quite often your typical SQL Server DBA or database architect doesn't know that much about hardware. And your hardware, infrastructure, server administrator type people don't know much about SQL Server. So you sort of had a conflict there. So I'd always been kind of interested in hardware myself personally and in my career. So I tried to write that book to help bridge that gap. And the biggest issue that I see with SQL Server hardware, you know, to this day is that your server admins again, don't know that much about SQL Server workloads, and sometimes they're not fully aware of how SQL Server is licensed. So they'll go out with good intentions and spec out a new server that's not very well suited for SQL Server, either from a performance perspective or from a licensing perspective. Mm. You know, ever since we had core-based licensing in SQL Server 2012, that changed how you need to think about picking a particular processor for example. And what I find so often with consulting customers is somebody's gone out and bought a server and they picked, say, an eight-core processor, but instead of picking the fastest one, the top of the line eight-core, they picked a less expensive eight-core and they give up a huge amount of performance for the same licensing costs. Yeah. And, and of course, the licensing cost for most of these people swamps the cost of the hardware. Definitely. You know, and that's, you know, it's just false economy when somebody picks a mid-range or low-end SKU processor to save, say, $500 or $1,000 on the server, and they give up 30, 40, 50% of their single-threaded performance. Mm. And that's just not a good uh, deal to do that. Yeah, indeed. And so have, have you got specific processes you really like at the moment? Oh, yeah. I mean... Intel, you know, definitely I favor Intel processors. Unfortunately, AMD hasn't been able to compete for about the last five to six years when it comes to single-threaded performance. Uh, where they used to be everywhere. They seem very quiet now. Yeah, and that's sad because it doesn't keep pressure on Intel. But anyway, speaking of Intel processors, you know, they've had this thing called the TikTok uh release cycle for the last 10 years, and now they're moving away from that to something called process architecture optimization. But TikTok, they would release a new microarchitecture every two years and then shrink to a smaller manufacturing process in their intervening year. And so you could sort of use that for planning purposes when it was time to do an upgrade. Mm -hmm. And so the latest and greatest server-level processors that are available right now are from what's called the Broadwell family. Yeah. So that is the sixth-generation core architecture, and they released the Broadwell EX just a few months ago this year, and that's for four-socket and above servers. And then they released the Broadwell EP a few months earlier in this year in the first quarter, and that's, those two are the very best that you can get right now for current uh, servers. And that's where you want to be, if at all possible. Mm. 
And, you know, what they keep doing is they keep increasing the core count with each new generation. And then they introduce little small optimizations, for example, to make virtualization work better. And they get slightly better single-threaded performance, but it's not going up as fast as it used to in the past. So that's why it's really important. And I've written a number of blog posts where I give you a list. Okay, if you're going to get a Broadwell EP processor, they offer, say, 35 different models. But of those 35, you only want the ones on this list because these offer the best performance for particular physical core count you know, going from four cores to six cores to eight, all the way up to 22 cores. And you want to pick one of the ones on this list. And to make matters even more complicated, I suppose, you really don't want the highest core count flagship processor because that gives you more capacity, but you give up so much single-threaded performance that you would be better off in most cases to have two lower count core count servers rather than one with the highest core count processor because mm. you would get more single threaded performance and have more overall capacity and in some cases you can lower your total license by and save a huge amount of money that would actually pay for the entire hardware and storage just on your SQL server license cost savings so that's what you want to do think like that what what's your well, take on the current state of virtualization SQL Server? Well, I mean, for super high-intensity Tier 1 workloads, I would prefer to be bare metal. You know, I know there's people out there like David Klee who would be very upset to hear me say that, but you you give up a very small amount, you know, 3 to 5% of performance for the hypervisor overhead. Mm. And each new generation of processor reduces that somewhat. So for some workloads, I want to be bare metal and plus, being bare metal takes virtualization out of the puzzle, so there's less things to troubleshoot and less finger-pointing from the different teams. But for most workloads, virtualization works perfectly fine, you know, as long as you have the right host and you don't oversubscribe it with too many VMs and you have the hypervisor configured correctly. As long as you go through and do what you're supposed to do, and have enough resources to support your workload, virtualization works perfectly fine. Yeah. And what are the most common problems or misconfigurations you see with the virtualization? Well, people do things like some basic things, like they don't enable hardware virtualization support in the BIOS of the host. Mm -hmm. I see that a lot. People don't set the power management correctly at the host level. Yep. And they don't set it correctly at the hypervisor level. So then they're giving up a huge amount of performance because of those two simple little things. Mm. Uh, another thing I see is people will create what's called a wide VM where it's got more cores in the VM than fit in a single NUMA node on the host. Mm. Now, you know, newer versions of VMware will support that better than they used to, but still it's not really usually a good idea. So if you've got an eight core physical processor, you don't want to create a 10 core VM in most cases. How, how and the same way with memory. How good is the current like ESX and so on at, uh, you know, if I say I want eight cores and I've got uh, eight cores in each NUMA node, how good is it at sort of keeping it within the within the node? 
Well, I think the latest versions of VMware do a pretty good job, you know, compared to older versions of, of doing that. And they're trying, because what you're trying to avoid is foreign memory access where you're going to another NUMA node to get something from RAM. And I think they handle that a lot better than they used to. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. The, uh, uh, I suppose the, the most basic things, though, um, in terms of uh, soft provisioning of CPUs and memory and so on? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I see people doing fairly often is, let's say they've got a, a four-core uh, VM and they're seeing performance issues, so their first instinct might be to, let's make it eight cores. Yeah. And in some cases, that'll make things worse because you've got a lot of CPU ready time showing up. And, you know, that's not always the best thing to do. Sometimes you're actually better to reduce the number of cores on the VM, depending on what's going on on the host level. Anything around the configuration of memory, like the balloon drivers or anything? Is it just in general you prefer those disabled? Yeah, that usually seems to work better in my experience. Mm. And uh, have you had any experience? Uh, I noticed that uh, Alan Hurt was posting the other day about the, the blogs around the uh, RDMA uh, network interface cards, the NICs. Um, have you seen any of those in action as yet? I, not yet, personally. I'm pretty excited to start working with that now that SQL Server officially supports storage spaces direct and yeah. Windows Server 2016. And so there's RDMA, and, yeah, for those that haven't read, it's like a remote direct memory access. Yeah, so it just sounds like the way to do uh, very high-speed uh, work across the network in future. And uh, certainly the message seemed to be that if you're buying new servers at the moment, you're making a big mistake uh, if you're not buying the ones with the RDMA NICs. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, even if you're not going to use Storage Spaces Direct, having that sort of NIC is a good idea. Mm. But, you know, what those typically are used with things like uh, InfiniBand, mm. and you can get, say, 56 gigabits per second of bandwidth out of a single NIC. Mm. And that's that's huge when it comes to SQL Server because, you know, one thing I'm a big believer in for SQL Server is having lots of sequential bandwidth. You know, a lot of times when you talk to SAN administrators and SAN vendors, they always tout their IOPS performance. You and they don't always with very cached results, I might add. Yeah, no, you're right. But when it comes to what the things that we do as DBAs on a day-to-day -day basis, things like rebuilding indexes or creating indexes or running full database backups, things like that are bottlenecked by your sequential bandwidth. And that often gets the short end of the stick when it comes to many SANs. Yeah. Actually, that raises storage. So what's what's your take on the current storage, and what, what are you thinking about what's coming down the track that might interest you? Well, what I've been seeing going on the last year or so is really the rise of PCIe NVMe mm -hmm. devices. So... NVMe is a new protocol that replaces the older AHCI protocol that came out with SATA and SAS devices, and it has a lot less uh, I.O. overhead and much lower latency, and it reduces your CPU utilization mm. by using one of those devices. So you've got very inexpensive PCIe storage cards from vendors like Intel mm. that are extremely affordable, and 
they give you really good uh, I.O. bandwidth and low latency and, and good IOPS, and they're just extremely affordable. And so I see a lot of people ditching their SANs and using those, especially if they combine it with, say, always-on availability groups where you can have any kind of storage you want on each node in your cluster. So I see a lot of that going on. I, I'm, I have to say I'm so pleased to hear you say that because the uh, I, I feel uh, whenever I'm in a lot of these corporates and sort of preaching that maybe they should be considering these and ditching, ditching the corporate sand, uh, it, it almost feels like some sort of sacrilegious uh, position I'm taking. Uh, but it's just the way to get the right performance. Yeah, it is. I mean, even uh, a good SAN, if it's shared, is going to be frustratingly inconsistent in performance in many cases. And, you know, if, if you've got a big company that's made a big investment in their SANs, they're going to be reluctant to give that up. But sometimes you can make little baby steps along the way. So, for example, I'm sure you know this, but if you've got SQL Server 2012 or new, newer in a traditional failover cluster, you can move TempDB to be on your local nodes in the cluster. And that's usually very easy to do. And quite often you can get your SAN people to accept that because then you get better TempDB performance and you're taking that TempDB load off of the SAN so they don't fight it quite as much. Yeah, in fact, the, the TempDB move to that is uh, is a, a very straightforward and, and easy uh, sort of option to often improve things dramatically. The um, In terms of uh, physical support in the types of servers or blade servers or whatever you see, um, how many of them have, I suppose, enough sockets or room or whatever to, to do this? Well, you're right. With blade servers, you probably don't have as many sockets. Personally, I don't really like using blade servers for SQL Server mm -hmm. because all those blades are in a shared chassis, yep. and that's a single point of failure, and you've got shared resources across all the blades in the chassis, and I really don't like that personally. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good. And so are there any particular devices you really like? As you mentioned, the Intel ones. Well, Intel is basically my favorite right now. Okay. Uh, because, you know, you're thinking of? well, they have the DCP3700 series as their top of the line device. It's been out for, I don't know, almost two years now. Yep. And it's due for a refresh. Mm -hmm. And they have some lower cost models. The DCP3520 is newer. And it's more of a, a read-intensive device. It doesn't have the endurance or the right performance, but it's yeah. you know even less expensive. Oh, although I, I, it does sort of surprise me uh, how how concerned people get about right performance in all of these things in uh, in SQL Server land, because even even on systems I go to that are just the uh, what people would consider right heavy systems. I mean, I, I never see any that really are right heavy. I mean, uh, like the percentage of reads and things is usually still extraordinary compared to the amount of writes. Yeah, most workloads are that way, but occasionally you'll see systems that are really hitting TempDB hard with a lot of writes. But you're right. You know. In terms of the normal data files, I, I just don't see that very often. Well, certainly not in the typical business systems I see. Yeah. you know, And another place that I see people using cards like this is that they use buffer pool extensions. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, buffer pool extensions that came out in SQL Server 2014, 
Microsoft sort of crippled it in a way because uh, and I'm interested to see what you think of this, Greg, but what I wish they had done is I wish that they would have given us some more configuration options, some more knobs, mm. because what it's designed for is that if you've got an OLTP workload and you're using a magnetic SAM that has pretty poor random read I.O. performance, if that's the case, then using BPE can sometimes help, assuming you put the BPE file on fast and lower the flash storage. But what I wish they would have let us do is if you knew that you had a data warehouse kind of a workload with big sequential reads, mm. and let's say that you're stuck on standard edition with that low memory limit. So once you've maxed out your memory and you're still seeing issues, you know, reading those big sequential reads, if they would let us say, okay, this is the kind of workload I have, and then let us use the BPE file to cache those big reads in the BPE instead of having to get it back off of mm. the slow SAN. And it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. No. But in, in supposedly... Theory, though, uh, yeah, performance uh, enhancements and standard edition are not two words that they seem to like to go together. Uh, uh, anything that smells like performance at the moment tends to be... Enterprise. Yeah, but... Yeah. You know, it was nice that they at least added that to standard edition. And what I was going to say is that uh, Kevin Farley has confirmed that they are making some more investments in BPE for SQL Server V next. They haven't well, said was, what those are going to be. Yeah, but, I was surprised it was limited to a single file. Yeah, that's, that's one issue. Hmm. But... Again, I hope they give us some more flexibility to make it work better for different kinds of workloads. Mm. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting twist. Um, in terms of other common storage misconfigurations, what do you see there? Oh, wow, lots of different things. I mean, lots of my customers have Dell servers, and Dell has this utility in the, it's a Windows GUI utility that lets you go in and configure your RAID arrays and set the policies. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, known only to Dell, the default when you go in there and create a RAID array in Windows is to disable the cache. Yeah. So if you've got a decent hardware RAID controller with, say, two gigabytes of cache that you paid extra for, the default policies they have that cache disabled. And I've seen so many customers where that's how they have it running, and they have no idea they're not even using that hardware cache. Uh, another thing I see is people have their RAID cache controllers set up to do write-through instead of write-back caching. Yeah. And also, you know, what you want to do for most SQL Server workloads with a RAID controller is try to use that hardware cache for writes instead of reads. Mm. So... You want to go in there and disable read-ahead caching, for example, so you can try to force it as much as possible to be used for writes instead of reads. You want to use the SQL Server buffer pool for reads. Yeah, do many of the ones you see allow you to configure the balance of that? Um, no, unfortunately not, but just by disabling read-ahead caching, you have some control over that. Hmm. Yeah, you'd think you'd be able to exert some control over the proportions of those things. Uh, you know. Yeah, I think you can do that with a lot of SANs, but not so much with just regular, you know, RAID controller 
PCIe cards. Mm. Yeah, it's good. Now, in terms of the move to more local storage for performance, then I suppose the other half of that message is high availability very much means down the uh, availability groups or something path. Well, yeah, you can go that way. Uh, you know, another thing along that line is do you decide to have two storage cards and use software RAID 1 so you have some redundancy at the hardware level, or do you decide, well, we're just going to do availability group, and if we lose this node, we'll fail over. There's two different schools of thought there. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it, it has actually brought a bit of a resurgence to software RAID, which uh, years ago people thought was almost gone. So. Yeah. Well, software RAID is fine if it's not parity-based. You know, there's really no overhead for it. So. Mm. Yeah, no, no, that, that sounds useful. The um, Any other sort of hardware changes you see coming up you think would be interesting? Oh, yeah. I mean, one thing that I've written some articles about recently, and there's there were some good sessions at, at the Ignite conference a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. is this idea of persistent memory. Yeah. And, you know, Hewlett Packard Enterprise is the first server vendor out the gate with this. But what this lets you do is you can put these special DIMMs in your regular memory slots mm-hmm. if you've got the right model server. And, what these things are is they have memory backed by uh, NAND chips, mm. and then they have a capacitor on the DIM and or they're connected to a battery on the motherboard. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. It, it just seems such a neat idea as they, if the power goes away, you've got enough power in the capacitor to squirrel the contents of the memory away into the NAND. Exactly. So power up, you bring it back. Yeah. So it just so it looks like RAM and runs like RAM the whole time, but but it's actually persistent. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, and what's nice about it too is that now with Windows Server 2016, you've got support for this, so you can set this up as a drive volume that Windows sees as a drive, and they've also got a new feature in SQL Server 2016 that lets you have uh, basically the tail of the transaction log located on one of those volumes. Mm-hmm. So then you can write directly to, and they have two different modes. They've got something called DAX mode, which is sort of an unfortunate acronym. Mm-hmm. And then they've got block mode. Like we haven't already had DAX uh, reused for something. Yep. Exactly. But with SQL Server 2016 and Windows Server 2016 and the appropriate hardware and a trace flag, you can use that DAX mode and you can get almost memory-like performance reading and writing to whatever's on that small, relatively small volume that you can expose right now. And the only downside right now in these early days is that an 8 gigabyte stick of this memory is about $900 US. Yeah, that, that was my very next question, is that when I looked at the uh, in the news article, I looked and I went, wow, that's not very big, the size of the devices they had. The, the direction seemed amazing, but, yeah, I did wonder. And so I, that was actually the thing I was next going to ask you, is if you knew what the largest ones were. Well, I believe that they're going to start production of 16-gigabyte devices in, in this month. And you know, I'm sure they're going to go larger relatively quickly, but the cost is still going to be quite a bit higher. 
than conventional RAM for a while, but it just gives you another level there because, you, you know, traditionally you've got several levels in this memory and storage hierarchy. You know, so you've got your level one cache and your level two cache and level three cache in the processor. And then you went out to main memory and then you went out to storage. That's all you used to have. But now we've got well, another layer with tiered storage as well, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, you have different levels of storage, so you could have magnetic storage, and then you could have SATA or SAS NAND flash, and then we've got faster PCIe NVMe flash. So that's been around for a little while. But what's coming out now is the persistent memory, and then another thing that we haven't talked about yet which is something that Intel and Micron are pushing called uh, Optane. Mm. And what it's going to be is sort of a new kind of flash memory that is much, much faster than conventional NAND flash, mm. and it's more durable. And so they're going to sometime probably in 2017, they're going to have storage devices just like a flash device that offer much, much better performance than conventional NAND. And they're touting that as another layer between the very fastest NAND flash devices and memory, you know, regular DRAM memory. So there's a lot of exciting things on the horizon. How limiting would the existing, like uh, I'm thinking of the buses at the moment, like a lot of people seem to take these devices and shove them into drive form factors and then stick them through standard drive interfaces and uh, and I'm just thinking I mean that has to be increasingly limiting as a channel for I mean they, they really do need to go into sockets inside the machine yeah I mean your standard SAS SATA goes up to 12 gigabits per second so you can get roughly a gigabyte per second of throughput through that but you know you're right. You need to want you want to be in a PCIe slot and be right on the bus, so you have more bandwidth and less latency. Mm. Yeah, indeed. Because and some of these are the ones I see at the moment. It's uh, the alternatives are, are wickedly expensive. Like as a client I'm dealing with in the UK at the moment, and they they were buying several of these uh, large IBM Flash SAN arrays, and yeah, they were like. Oh, 1.2, 1.3 million UK pounds each, you know, and, and uh, 20 terabyte sand boxes. But I mean, you know, like uh, I, I, even then, I'm just going to be fascinated to see what the performance of that is when it's sort of out across the sand. Yeah. Well, I mean, one exciting development in that area is this whole thing called Storage Spaces Direct or S2D that is part of Windows Server 2016, and you have to have Data Center Edition to get it. Mm. But what you can do with this, it's software-defined storage. So you can build a cluster of file servers, and they just changed it when they, at the Ignite conference, they announced that you can have a two-node cluster. Before that, the lowest was three or four nodes. Mm. So what this lets you do is you can have these commodity-level uh, file servers with regular SATA drives, whether they're magnetic or flash, combined with PCIe NVMe cards. Mm. And they're, they're set up so that you have a caching layer with whatever your fastest kind of drive is, and you've got a capacity layer with your slower drives. And there's many ways of configuring this, but the idea is that you can get 
really good performance and really good redundancy, depending on how you configure all this. And this is sort of being sold as a possible SAM replacement. Mm-hmm. And there's two main ways of deploying it. You can do what's called a hyperconverged architecture, where you've got your storage combined with a hypervisor and VMs running on each machine in this cluster, or you can have this storage cluster as a separate cluster that things like SQL Server might be talking to, just as if they were talking to a SAM. So if that takes off, like I sort of hope it does, that's going to put the hurt on a lot of big storage vendors, I think, because it'll be a lot less expensive to do that. The only sort of downside is that it requires data center addition. So you're, and they're using core-based licensing in Windows Server 2016, and they require a minimum of 16 server core licenses for every machine, regardless of what it has in it. So that's going to mean that you've got to spend about $6,000 on each machine just for the Windows servers licenses, you know, on top of whatever the hardware costs. So that's going to make it a little bit more expensive, but it's still, that's a lot less than a million dollars for high-end sand. Yes, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so, listen, one of the things I do find when I go into a lot of sites, though, I mean, there's just simple uh, corporate edicts that says everything will be on the sand. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with that sort of thing? I'm sure you must run into it. Oh, yeah, I run into that too a lot. Uh, well, I mean, what you want to do as a DBA if you run into that situation is... If it's causing performance issues for you, you want to try to document that and gather up as much evidence as you can to prove that you're seeing performance issues because of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can do that, and then you can also run disk benchmarks like Crystal Disk Mark and Microsoft Disk Speed. And the only problem with that is sometimes you'll gather up all this evidence and take it to your SAN administrator or storage administrator and they'll say, well, the sand looks fine to me, and your benchmarks are just synthetic benchmarks that are not SQL Server. So when that happens, I've got a pretty easy way to combat that that's worked pretty well for me. And what I do is I find a, a very large table on one of the databases and then just run a query where I force it with an index hint to do a table scan or a clustered index scan. And then you can easily, I, I've blogged about this, but then you run the query and you measure with statistics IO on and statistics time on how long it takes and how many IOs it took. And you can calculate, you know, how many megabytes per second you're getting in sequential throughput to do that query. And when it comes back and it says, you know, 75 megabytes per second, well, then the SAND administrator can't say that, that it's artificial because that's SQL Server doing something real, and you're seeing how bad the performance is for a very simple test. And importantly, large enough to exceed whatever the caches are. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Mm. So it needs to be on a, a large enough table that it's not just going to be served up from the cache on the SAND. Yeah, because no, that, that's the other common thing that I see there. And so, listen, um, so... The other thing I was going to ask you about, Glenn, is just um, other things you might have coming up or where people will uh, come across you or see you in upcoming days or months. Well, the next thing that I have coming up just in a few days, actually, is I'll be giving a, an all-day pre-conference session on Monday, October 24th at the PASS Summit. 
And what I'm going to be doing, I'm really excited about it because I'm going to be going through my complete set of diagnostic information queries for SQL Server 2016, and there's nearly 80 of these queries. And I've done this a number of times before where I have to rush through it in a 75-minute or 90-minute session, and I've even done half-day sessions. Yeah, and so when I only have 90 minutes, I've really got to rush through it, but I'm going to have six hours, so I'm going to be able to go through every single query and explain how to interpret the results. And if you look at my diagnostic queries, I have a huge amount of links to knowledge-based articles and blog posts, and I've got lots of comments about how to interpret things. So I'll be able to go through all of that and, and answer everybody's questions. And we've already got, you know, about 160 people signed up for this pre-con, so I hope That's there's even more people do it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And worth yeah. noting too that the uh, the diagnostic queries you've got you've got them for different versions of the product too, not just the latest ones. Yeah, I go SQL Server 2005 through 2016, and what I'm going to do probably not till November to be honest is I want to have a new version for Azure SQL Database. So I think that'll be useful for a lot of people. While I've still got you, is that uh, have you had many clients moving across using that or seeing new greenfield applications on Azure SQL DB? Well, so far at SQL Skills, we haven't done that many, just a few. We've done, a, I'd say we've done more people that are running uh, Azure with infrastructure as a service, so they're running Azure VMs. That seems to be an easier first step. For existing clients who are moving, uh, usually some sort of lift and shift into infrastructure, you know, is is, is the most straightforward one. The um, it's it's actually something I've sort of talked to the product group about. I, I I wish the marketing for Azure SQL DB was more targeted at developers and greenfield applications rather than sort of targeting, you know, hey, you can pick this thing up and move it, but here are the things that are missing. You know, I I, I just I would like to see a lot more positive spin because it's an awesome platform for people to build new apps against, but the best outcome is if you build new apps against it. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. It's a lot easier to do that than to try to pour an existing application to it. Mm. I think the the main thing I find is that the vast majority of apps are just far too chatty to start with, um, and so just the, the you know it, no, no matter how small the latency is, and it's the story is getting better and better, particularly with lots of local data centers. Uh, you, know, you you still are talking about you know when you've got chatty applications. Um, they're just they're not designed really for this sort of structure. Um, I was looking at an application the other day, and uh, I think even on really really high end hardware, you know, it, it, I had one process that ran for about forty something minutes. But but what worried me more is that it did like five hundred and fifty million batch requests. You know, like like mm -hmm. it's a, it's a tribute to SQL Server that it gets that done. Um, <laughs> but yep. that's not a sensible way to build an application. Yeah, and, you know, you've got that latency you're dealing with in that situation. You know, you can't get around the speed of light, unfortunately. And so, yeah, and I, I like to see people who actually designed for this. And and a lot of the uh, developers who are, you know, using alternatives 
are not at all aware of like why they should be using this instead, you know. And uh, there's so much value provided by the platform. Uh, I'd just love to see all the marketing turn around and talk about that. Um, yeah, and it's easier to do now that you've got almost feature parity with on-premises SQL. You know, yeah, there's very few things you can't do anymore. Yeah, yeah that's right. That, that's actually a great story. But the, the thing I find, though, is that people will still have the odd thing. You know, they'll have service broker in place or they'll have something, you know, there'll be something they've got. Uh, or something they're using in SQL CLR that, you know, is never going to work on there. I mean, by the time people have built up applications, they often have funky, quirky sorts of things in them, and they're the, they're the hardest things to pick up and move to those environments. Oh, yeah, you're totally right. And then the other issue in Azure right now is just I.O. performance. Mm. You know, that's sort of the Achilles heel. It's getting better all the time, but it's still... You can't get the same kind of I/O performance that you can with on-premises, you know, if you're willing to spend lots of money. So, yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, look, I, I hope your session uh, goes off, awfully well and uh, at pass. It's one I, I wish I had a spare day to come and sit and listen. I, I think that that would be a barrel of fun. But uh, <laughs> but thank you for talking to us today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Greg. I really enjoyed it. Good. Thanks.